1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today, I speak with Chris O'Leary, the author of Rebel Rebel. Our conversation explores the earliest part of David Bowie's career, including the period when Bowie is trying to find the right persona and sound to become a commercial success. We discuss some of Bowie's influences and where he fits in the history of rock music. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, Well, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in David Bowie.
0: Sure thing. Um, I am a freelance writer and editor, and my main day job is writing about legal affairs. I edit a a legal newsletter, and I do some other legal-related writing, companies suing each other, securities law, fun things like that. Um, But for a long time in the 2000s, I was just doing kind of an obscure music blog, which at some point I, I got tired of, and I thought about What else could I do? And I'd always wanted to do kind of a survey of a single artist. I thought that would be kind of a fun thing, kind of chronological order. And the idea came to me when I was in a record store in the summer of 2009. And I noticed that there was a collection of David Bowie music from the 60s, which was a period I didn't I didn't really know. I'd forgotten he was even making records before Space Oddity. So I bought that, and I, that was kind of the trigger. I was like, there's a lot about Bowie I don't know, even though I was I loved his music when I was a teenager. And that was kind of the start of it.
1: Um, one thing that, that really blew me away as I was reading the book is just the meticulous amount of detail that <laughs> you were able to find about some of these songs. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you went about researching uh, some of these studio sessions from, like, the late '60s and early '70s. Um, how would you how did you do that? Uh, yeah, um, there's a lot of sources. What's
0: what was very valuable um, was in 2010, I believe. There was a book that came out by a guy named Kevin Can, who is sort of the equivalent to Mark Lewison for the Beatles. The the guy who's kind of been tracking Bowie since I believe the late '70s. He started as a fan a fanzine writer. And he's just somebody who I think has created this massive database of stuff. And this one book was just sort of Bowie's 60s day by day. And it was an incredible, great resource to have as sort of like a map. It's like, okay, here's sort of how everything worked. And then I just, you know, I would, I would read all the bu- the bios and take notes and try to compare people's quotes. Um, often it was people would say something in a contemporary interview in 1972 that they would then contradict in some interview they gave <laughs> in the late nineties. And so it was just like, what story seems the most right, that kind of stuff. And obviously w- people are revising their their ideas over the years and forgetting things and creating legends. So it was just really a lot of just uh, trying to use as many primary sources as possible. Um, there was a site called rocks back pages, which collects a lot of the NME and Melanie maker and sounds articles from the seventies um, by people like Charles Charles Murray and, Ian McDonald, who interviewed Bowie and often went to the sessions, and that was that was also great just to get you know the details because it could be a stray thing that somebody like McDonald noticed, like oh they're listening to this demo today and it sounds like blah blah blah, and you realize oh that's this song, you know, and, and it's just trying to create, um, just kind of use all these various things and create a narrative of sorts. Uh, hopefully, I was I was correct. In some cases, it's it's educated guesswork, I'd say.
1: So. So in that these these early days in in his career who, who was David Bowie uh how would you describe him Um you mean like the
0: 60s yeah. uh, like the space oddity period yeah. yeah um It's interesting David Bowie is just somebody who from a very early age wanted to was just not content being a suburban kid um he was somebody who was, did not want to go to even though he was in he was very bright and was a huge reader, he had no interest in kind of secondary education um and he hated having a boss uh he, he, he was never good with jobs he, all his jobs are very short lived and he gets very distracted and and just obviously somebody who's just not fit for um the nine to five world as the old Ramon song goes and what um What saved him was that he was in this milieu, which was mod London, 60s London. Uh, He he lived in the suburbs, but he was able to commute. And it was this kind of boiling pot um, of all this stuff, not just music, but theater and film and art galleries and everything. And there were all these ambitious people out there looking to make a name for themselves as managers, as producers. And he was such a charismatic guy such an ambitious guy himself that he was able to get all these kind of second and third chances, even though like, you know, his records would flop. He'd get a new label within six months. So basically, he's somebody who's just who is unsatisfied being sort of a suburban kid and who is talented and just absolutely relentless on becoming famous in some way, whether it was an actor, as a as a director. He always had ambitions of being a film director, which never came to pass. And as a musician, and um, it was music that kind of took, but it was a very circuitous way of, of getting there. And it took six years, seven years before he finally kind of broke through. And even that, was a the Space Oddity, was kind of a, a tenuous breakthrough. It still took him a few more years before he really kind of established himself.
1: Well, in reading the book, I, I guess I'd ever realized that Space Oddity was, was kind of, um, I don't even know what the right word is it was almost, it was almost like it was almost aimed at a commercial audience and it was almost kind of oh, like, yeah. and so, um, what, what do you make of the fact that early on he was just, you know, just desperate trying almost anything he could do and almost like, almost seeming like imitating all sorts of things that were mm-hmm. happening. Um, very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one one of the the, the the songs that I I did not know, <laughs> but I really enjoyed reading about was the Laughing Gnome, and oh, yeah. it seemed like he would do almost anything to try to oh, to get an audience, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, he always had. I mean, the thing
0: that defined him was he always had very good timing, and so he knew when a style was getting stale before anyone. A lot of other people did not, and so he he realized early on that kind of you know, Spencer Davis group kind of mod soul was starting to wane by the summer of '66. And so he immediately kind of goes into this kind of, you know, genteel psychedelia of his first album. And then he realizes very quickly that that music is spawning all these bizarre novelty hits like Winchester Cathedral and Green Tambourine and all that junk. And so he seems like, hey, this could be it. I'm I'm going to do the laughing gnome, and and I, you know it, you know roll the dice differently, and that could have been like a big novelty. I mean, like if the label had gone behind it, and if the time had been better, and same with a song called "Love You Till Tuesday," which I kind of make the claim for, quite easily could have been a big kind of growth. It's a song I don't really care for too much, but a kind of like you know, a cheery Herman's
1: Hermits knockoff kind of
0: '67 pop hit.
1: Yeah, so you know when you're when you were yeah. researching this. This, early, this very very early David Bowie. Like, yeah. What kind of uh, generalizations did you or realizations did you have about about him as an artist um, and him as a human being?
0: Um, yeah, it's it, it's funny because when I first got into David Bowie, um, it was the late '80s, and it was uh, a period when one of the reasons I got into him was there was a series of reiss- reissues of his. Earlier records by uh, Ryko, a CD, a CD company, and at the same time, it was it was the Sound and Vision tour. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm playing the greatest for the last time. It's 1990, and at that time, there was a real, I think, a deliberate attempt by him um, to kind of rewrite the past. In kind of like Space Oddity is Ground Zero, and there's really nothing before that except for juvenilia. And I kind of bought that. If you like, look at some of the record guides of the 80s, like the Rolling Stone record guide, the Trouser Press record guide, they don't even talk about the first album, or if they do, it's, incre- it's dismissed in a sentence. You know, It's just like, and this was just, you know, written. Anthony Newley junk that he's, he totally has written out of his history, with, and rightfully so. And I found one of the things I really found fascinating was going back to the 60s, uh, the early, the, the so-called dark ages of his... And realizing how much of the Bowie that everybody loves is already there. Um, The sensibility, the sort of melodic um, gifts, the the kind of the strange chord progressions, the kind of odd songwriting he always did. In part because he was self-taught and also because he would often use musicians in the way he would throughout his career as sort of pigments uh, on, on an easel just like you, know, you play this and play this and play this and oh that sounds good, I'll use that and I'll edit that into a loop or something that's kind of there from the start and, and other things, uh, the obsession with dystopias and science fiction um, the uh, interest in split personalities and identities and all that it's all there pretty much from the start when she gets past the first kind of um, hard rock and roll singles, that's pretty much there from 66 onward so I guess what I found was, you know, the the continuity I didn't expect would be there was there um, that the that the guy who's assembling himself in 1966 is not that far removed from the person who made Station Station, which I think is the, yeah, one the one of the claims of
1: of the book. Yeah. Um, well, it was funny that you mentioned Anthony Newley because. One yeah. of the things that really jumped out at me was when you write about how, you know, he he, he sort of latched on to Anthony Newley as someone some something, yeah. something that he he could use as an example. Um who were some of the other people who he who, are, he who really influenced uh Bowie? Yeah.
0: Um he always had a taste for kind of musical weirdos. He loved people like um I mentioned the book Biff Rose. Biff Rose was a sort of beatnik um Randy Newman-esque figure in who who had a mild name for himself in the late '60s in America, and he loved um, Ken Nordine, who was again sort of a upbeat figure who did these kind of bizarre albums called Word Jazz, where you'd have like this kind of back you know jazz backdrop, and he would speak very very deeply and blah 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 you know. And he loved Frank Zappa. He loved Beefheart. He loved um, all of those kind of people. Other fugs. And so. You know, that was in a way that he was kind of creating a spectrum. He had like those guys on the far, on the far left. He's like, you know, I'm intrigued by these people, but I'm, I have a commercial instinct. I want to sell records too. I can't be as crazy as them. And then on the other hand, on the other half of the spectrum, he has Anthony Newley. He has Lionel Bart, who wrote Oliver, the musical, um, you know, as that kind of thing. And, and even, you know, Jacques Brel and Scott Walker, um, Sort of we kind of in the middle, you know, sort of avant-garde, but also still kind of classical pop singing. And he's just kind of spends the sixties balancing himself between all these forces. Uh, and obviously Lou Reed mm-hmm. and Bob Dylan and, and, uh, and John Lennon and Paul McCartney, you know, the basics, Ray Davies is an underrated influence just in terms of songwriting uh, on him and and Townsend, you know, pretty much every major sixties
1: guy. Um, is in the brew also? <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned Townsend because Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing that really jumped out at me was when Townsend was listening to some of his songs, and he said, "Who, who wrote these?" And and him, <laughs> Bowie. He's Like oh, those right. sound like my songs. Um, yeah, yeah, that's so, yeah, a great answer. So you know, is he? like as, as I was reading this book, I'm like, is Bowie, you know, a true artist who's really an original, or is he just a really sophisticated? kind of imitator copyist and, and where, where did you come out on that question?
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's sort of the central, you know, if there's ever been like a, a, a long argument, like a against Bowie, it's tends to be like, he is the foremost imitator and um, pastichist of his generation. He's not a original. He's someone who takes the best, from all these other genres and makes them his own in his own way, but he, he's just, he's just an incredible thief and synthesist, And, you know, that's been used against him in many cases, especially by people who have claims towards more purist ideas of rock. It, It tends to happen in, in sort of areas in which authenticity is really prized. Like, uh, the punk era or sort of the roots rock era of the eighties where Bowie seems like a suspect figure. (laughs) You can't quite trust him. He's he's, you know, there's no surface there. It's all smoke and mirrors. And Bowie, um, I think would agree with it a lot gleefully. He would, he loved being this kind of, um, Mercurian figure who just kind of, you know, happily steals, blatantly steals from other people. And, and tweaks it and does his own thing. But I, but I guess you can argue that that is, it's a classic kind of postmodern style. It's not any different from uh, Rauschenberg or Jasper Johns or um, uh, Rosenquist or any other people like that, or, um, you know, filmmakers who, who use uh, motifs and footage from other, from other um, films and and kind of referencing to them uh, down, down to today where you have people like, you know, recreating Van Sant, recreating psycho shot by shot and things like that and exercises like that. So he's very much an artist of, of his era. Um, And I guess the other defense is that there is so much, you know, there isn't, the music has a emotional depth to it. that It's not just, um, academic exercises in here. I'm going to use Lou Reed and I'll marry him to Anthony Newley. It's there's obviously the songs, the songs have a lot of, of darkness and emotional resonance with people. I mean, the, the songs, I mean, I guess the case is time. I mean, his his music has lasted some, in some cases, almost 50 years now. And if it was just flim flammery, it, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have lasted that long. People wouldn't respond still to songs like changes. And, um, quicksand and so forth. It, obviously, it has an emotional appeal to people.
1: Well, one of the one of the things that, that I was thinking about, and, and you mentioned about all these artists he worked with, is he also did some production work for Iggy Pop. And I was trying yes. to kind of place that into the context of your book because it's in this set, same time period. And, um, you know, Search and Destroy really, you know, I think got Iggy Pop and the Stooges, like, on the national tension and really made them sort of, you know, really uh, uh, a well-known punk band and really seemed like had that punk ethos. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, David Bowie was um, central to that album. And so yeah. how did that, I mean, how did he get involved with someone like Iggy Pop and how did that affect <laughs> him?
0: Yeah. Um, part of it was Bowie has, has a long history of liking to be, a curatorial figure like, I'm going to discuss, he's like, it's almost like a British imperialist thing. I'm going to go out into the wild and I'll bag these exotic animals and I'll bring them back and show them to you in, a, in London in a zoo. And But he he also was very generous and whenever he would get um, commercial success, he would like to share it. He would like to, and so for example, when he gets a very good deal with with RCA, um, with Mainman, his kind of organization, he quickly has them sign Lou, you know, try to sign Lou, Lou Reed and, and Iggy, who at the time were both kind of at loose ends. Reed had put out a first solo album, which hadn't sold very well, in sort of in dicey situations. And of course, the Stooges were a complete mess. I think they had nearly broken up at some point in seventy one, seventy two. They didn't have a they didn't have a record deal. They were in complete chaos. And Bowie was able to. Um, in both cases, kind of, you know, produce their records and be sure that the press took attention of them and be sure that the distribution was there, you know, from RCA. And that was part of it. And also he kind of really enjoyed, I think, being the kind of the impresario behind these kind of more raw street American acts. And obviously in terms of influence, um, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, Sturgeon destroyed you know, the whole raw power record. Um, comes out right around the time he's making uh, Aladdin sane, so maybe there's there's some give and take. But very quickly he moves away from that, and he's doing things like Young Americans. So maybe it's it's a delayed, <laughs> a delayed thing because it, it comes back. It comes back more in the late seventies with things like Low and Heroes, which do have kind of an abrasive mm-hmm. um, punch than in some cases.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, I I I really like that that answer because that that was sort of my senses when I was. Yeah. Reading about Iggy Pop and seeing, you know, what a role that David Bowie played, I'm like, it just didn't fit with my image of of where Bowie yeah. was at that at that moment. So, so that's really that's really good. Now, you talk about him sort of wanting to be an empresario, and I think he really seems like someone who's mastered the industry or the business part of the music business and the music industry. Is this something he got from his dad, or where did he kind of pick that up?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah, his dad was a PR. Guy for um, a children's charity called Dr. Bernardo's Homes. And so he, that, you know, and he, though well, he worked very briefly in an advertising agency and of course would use this as, for years to come as an example of how he knew the evils of corporate America and corporate Britain. But in part, it was, some of it was hard, it was just hard experience because he kind of got played for a sucker by his manager um, in the early 70s. He, he had really had no idea about what the contract should be like. And he wound up signing a contract in which he thought he owned 50% of the, of the organization. And it turns out he was only owed 50% of the royalties or, or income less expenses. So really he, he didn't really own anything. He was kind of a contract employee. And once he realizes this and he gets free of that, um, he becomes much, much more savvy um, about his business affairs to the point where um He's you know he pulls off a securities offering in the late '90s to, to kind of buy out his manager's stake and and he by the '80s he's incredibly you know financially sound and, and savvy and completely set there. So I think it was sort of a you know a experience of just dealing with sharper operators than he was in the late, in the early '70s and learning how to how to do it. But he always had these kind of designs that he wanted to be like this kind of Warhol figure. In some cases, um, where he would be the central hub around this, you know, this, this solar system of eccentric people would rotate, and he would kind of bestow his <laughs> his attentions on each one in turn, and kind of create this this stable of artists. And it didn't really work out.
1: So, is <laughs> so this actually like <laughs> kind of leads like I guess the central question when you start thinking about David Bowie. Yeah is he an eccentric person and is he really that eccentric artist or is he just kind of playing one for us? Uh, what, what, hmm. what do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I,
0: I think it's, it's a bit, you know, it's sort of a, a non-answer, but yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think he is fundamentally, um, has odd interests and has always been fascinated by ideas and by, uh, knowledge just you know I want to, I want to know everything about this and that leads him in, into trouble because he gets really obsessed with Nazism <laughs> and uh, occult practices and he starts talking to interviewers about this in the mid 70s and that leads to him making all sorts of outrageous statements which he has to atone for but um I think it's you know it's somebody who seems to have spent much of his life in his in his head I think as everybody does but him even more than other people, he's an only kid, essentially, with um, a half-brother who he doesn't really see that often and who has me- mental mental issues. And he is lives in the suburbs and, I think, just read a lot and listened to a lot of music and, and watched a lot of movies. And that leads to kind of just pursuing interests that appeal to you, whether it seems bizarre to other people or not. And on the other hand, as you said, he... I think he plays up the fact that he is a bizarre extraterrestrial figure. Um, it's definitely part of the, the act, but I think that's also a mask to hide what he's quite said quite, quite bluntly was incredible shyness for a lot of the, a lot of the period. He was a very, very shy and private person and had to create this kind of bizarre figure as someone as a vehicle. So he could stay in, stay on stage for two hours and do TV interviews, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Well, I really am taken by your description of this mask and, and earlier you yeah. talked about him as sort of being maybe like almost a quintessential or emblematic sort of postmodern rock star. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know, I guess I want to hear you talk a little bit more about, about that. I mean, is he, I mean, is he kind of just, just a great emblem for our, for these postmodern times of the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years? Um, I mean, would he view himself that way?
0: I would think so. I mean, he, he's made, you know, he had a period in the nineties where he was really into um, like Damien Hearst and that kind of stuff. And um, he has periods where he fancies himself more of a a high art, you know, he talks about his painting. I wish I was a painter. I wish I was, you know, a filmmaker, that kind of thing. Um, I think Bowie is in terms of the postmodernism, he benefited from being one of the first people in rock music to be aware of being of the, of what rock music was because he had like somebody like a Jerry Lee Lewis or a Dion the Belmonts who just, you know, who just wanted to make it. And it, this was the music that worked and this was the music they grew up with. And they, and they, you know, it's country, it's blues, it's R and B. And we we'll are just, we'll just play it. And, You know, we're not sitting around going like, what does this mean? You know, it's just, and Bowie is someone who sits around and wonders, what does this mean? And he's someone who's very much aware that pop is, has cycles that, um, you know, there's sort of a, a, a lifespan, um, built on one teenage generation turning into another one. It's sort of like, you know, five years as it goes, is is a good rule of thumb, and so that's why you have to constantly be aware that um, fashion is going to change, and so you have to kind of either be ahead of it or kind of take a step back and go away for a while. Which I think is one of the reasons he, he stopped working um, for the last decade. I think he had kind of run out of of what he you know of areas he wanted to go in. Plus, you know, he was he was getting older. He had a health scare, but I think him vanishing for essentially. Seven or eight years um, was a brilliant move. It was sort of like he doesn't make anything and everybody starts talking about him again. Whereas, like, you know, Neil Young has put out 50 albums, I think, in the last decade. <laughs> he probably couldn't, add, you know, tell, find anybody who remembered or listened to all of them. He, or like Bob Dylan tours every single year, constantly. And it's sort of like a backdrop noise. Whereas, you know, Bowie very much is somebody who who knows the value of. Who knows a publicity campaign essentially? Who knows what people's attentions are like and when people are getting tired
1: of him, and and so then you know, when to take a break and or when to do something new. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting is is as you were kind of going through each uh, each of these songs, you, you mentioned that there were quite a few songs that he came back to uh, in the late '90s and early 2000s and recorded them mm. again, and um, I, I was surprised by that. Um, And I, to be honest, I had kind of was not familiar with that part of his career. Why, why did he, uh, why do you think he went back to, to some of these songs from, from his early days?
0: Yeah. Um, it's a good, it's, it's something I'm not quite sure of myself. I think he, um, had done such a good job walling off that part of his life for so many years that I think it was almost maybe fresh, like at some point, maybe he, for the first time since the seventies he sat down and listened to um, his mid sixties recordings We're like, Oh, you know, some of these weren't bad and maybe in, for, essentially for a lot of his audience, it was unknown music. <clears throat> Nobody, you know, no one really knew coming by my toys or, you know, you got to have it a leaving or silly boy blue or those songs. And I think it was also sort of part of the period he was in, which was the end of the millennium, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, was him in a very reflective, kind of deliberately nostalgic move. It was almost, it was sort of, again, a character. It was sort of the man in his 50s facing mortality for the first time character, which was obviously part real and also very much a stylized impression of a middle-aged man (laughs) facing mortality. And so... What, is, what does a middle-aged man facing mortality do? He often will go back to things from his youth and you know, re- revisit them or go back to you know, where he grew up or go you know, look through old books or something. And I think that was why he did the, the re-recordings in a way. It was like, can, can I see what my old... It was like a dialogue with his, with his 20-year-old self. What, you know, what, are, what were you talking about when you wrote these songs? I don't even know who you are anymore. It's sort of like a
1: dialogue. Well, well, one thing that I, I really think your book's going to do is, um, kind of get people's attention focused in on this early music. So are there maybe, uh, I don't know, a few songs, a half dozen songs that you would want people to, to go back and listen to, um, from this early period?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, cause definitely there's some, there's some stuff which hasn't held up well, um, <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, there are obviously there are absolutely bizarro songs. There's a song called "We Are Hungry Men," um, which is a science fiction radio play, essentially with cannibals and um, dy- dystopic you know, fascist leaders. But it's 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 kind of an off it's an almost unlistenable song. It's pretty horrific, um, but it's fascinating because it's it's sort of like seeing the first glimmerings of what will become Diamond Dogs or something. But in terms of actually the, the songs that people would enjoy listening to, um, there's a few on that that first album. There's Silly Boy Be- Blue, is a really pretty song. Um, and uh, Sell Me a Coat is a really pretty, kind of Simon Garfunkel-obvious-influenced thing. Um, there's a track called um, Can't Help Thinking About Me, which is the first single he did for Pi Records, which is this great kind of snotty, teenage defiant thing, which is um, still very enjoyable to listen to. Um, And I like laughing. Gnome. Yeah. I I really, I quite honestly think it's, it's an enjoyable uh, record. It's, it's so daft and funny. Um, And it, uh, people hate it. I mean, there's a song that has absolutely, that draws blood from people. (laughs) You know, it's, it's still used as this kind of like, Oh God, that horrible laughing gnome song. And, (laughs) It's understandable. I mean, like if, if I heard that in a wrong context, if I was like in a bad mood or something, it would probably be so grating. I want to throw it out a window, but in the right, in the right spirit, you have to, you have to enjoy it.
1: Well, one of the things that, that I, I really enjoyed about the book, and because it's such a detailed look at this portion of, of Boy's career is I get a sense of just how hard it is for a young artist to make it and everything they have to do. And, um, and I can't decide how much of that had, how how much has really changed between then and now. Um, What did, what did you kind of, what insights did you have about what it makes, what it makes, what it takes for an artist to make it um, in those early years (laughs) when nobody
0: knows (laughs) I guess the difference is, you know, you could expect at some point you would make money today. I don't know if you can (laughs) as a as a young musician, it's kind of depressing. You know the idea that the gold ring was you know you'd get a contract with r c a or e m i or something, and then you maybe you would make a little money, which probably would get ripped off by your manager, but you know at some point there was sort of fame and fortune as and now i don't I don't um know if that's even an idea for a lot of young people. I'm sure people still dream of being stars and what have you, but I think there's a realism that people don't don't really buy records anymore, and so what does it mean? you have to kind of create this image and then essentially, or do other things. And so that's changed. But the the fundamentals are still there in that you just kind of have to build an audience in some way. And Bowie's problem in the 60s is that he is kind of ahead of his audience, and he's too flighty to to kind of really work to build one. And so he assembles this kind of very, very small group of people who appreciate him for being odd. Um, But that's about it. (laughs) And you know, he doesn't have the sort of the a big working class, you know, following among young men, like the way the who did, you know, yeah. or he doesn't really have a folky um, James Taylor sort of kind of audience either because he's too abrasive. And so. so he kind of has to wait and wait. And then finally, I think he needed the generation that became the kids that loved glam. He needed them to grow
1: up to be teenagers, to appreciate what he was. So, one thing that strikes me is it is and, it, and I had this feeling when I was reading the book is was he really a studio musician or was he a live musician and obviously the book is focused on recordings but yes. I really got the sense that he the studio was kind of where he built his artistry and his persona he was not somebody who went on the road and like the uh, apocryphal stories about the beatles how they went to germany and they came back a band so did he ever have that kind of moment where playing out live like changed him
0: yeah um no i think you're right i think he is primarily he'll be judged by his studio um work i mean obviously the ziggy period where he has the spiders and ronson as his lead guy some of that is some very very great live music um And all his tours are, 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 are usually, you know, he always has good top level guys and it's, you know, but he has said that in the past, he really disliked touring and always felt uncomfortable. And, you know, where he was more of himself or where he was freer was, um, was in the studio. There's very little, there's nothing like the constant improv impro- improvising of, of even like a Dylan, you know, okay. Bowie live is it, it keeps very much to the studio recordings. Often there isn't, you know, there isn't like, he doesn't radically re rewrite songs for the stage with the exception of, in a few cases in 74. Um, so, oh yeah. But in terms of like, you know, the road hardening, mm-hmm. he had a period in 65 and 66 where he is playing a lot of clubs. Um, on a weekly basis and that does improve him as a singer. And I think it it makes him more confident as a performer, but he definitely, he is not somebody who is a road warrior, I think. And oddly enough, he only kind of became one at the very end of his career. Um, He finally became one in the mid two thousands where he suddenly is playing um, nonstop, like nine month, you know, across the world tours, which I think leads to, Contributed to his, his, his ill health. Hmm. Um, but that's the only time he really seems like he absolutely, I love being on stage. I love you like a, almost like a, you know, Rod Stewart kind of figure just basking in people's love for him. I think that's, that's something that developed very, very late in his life. And I think for most of the part, he was happy being uh, in a studio. Well,
1: um, thank you for, for taking so much time, uh, today and and sharing uh your 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 thoughts about the book and what you've done um are you working on any other projects right now
0: yeah um the blog is which the book is based on is still ongoing it's about to enter the next day the, the most recent album period and i'm also revising old entries and writing new stuff for the second book which i hope will cover the rest of his career that's the intention so it may, I'm not sure when that will come out hopefully sooner
1: than that oh good well thank you so much well thank you you have been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast today I've been talking with Chris O'Leary the author of Rebel Rebel this is your host Richard Scher thank you for listening